0: Welcome to IMTV. I'm Alan Keyes, and this is Let's Talk America. Today, I'm going to have the pleasure again of talking to my good friend Bill Federer. Uh, And as always, I'm going to be taking advantage of Bill a little bit uh, because I uh, am going to try to see what, in terms of uh, somebody who's really steeped in the history and background of the country, how he looks at this present situation, which is, I think, unprecedented in our history. Uh, against the backdrop of his knowledge of the kinds of things Americans have had to face and endure in the past. Uh, Because I think that that raises interesting questions both about circumstances and how people deal with them, but also about the character of the country. Uh, And and what it tells us about us in comparison uh, to people before us and how it stands up against the requirements uh, of our way of life, which after all, a government of, by, and for the people, as the founders thought, is a test of the character of that people if it's going to work. Do we still have the character needed to make it work? That will be part of our discussion when we get back. Hi, I'm Alan Keyes. I just want to let you know that on a recurring basis every Tuesday, we're going to have a guest, Mike Adams, the health ranger. He's going to be joining us to talk about the whole array of challenges, both in terms of our health as a people and as individuals, and our health as a nation. We'll be looking at those things through the eyes of someone who has thought deeply about many things and who has many great ideas to share with me and with you and with everyone who tunes in to Let's Talk America on Tuesdays when we meet with the health ranger to talk about how we sustain the health of our liberty. Welcome back. Well, my guest today is Bill Federer, famous uh, uh, throughout the Internet world, at least, and perhaps the world at large, uh, 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 for uh, being the man who is responsible for what's called the American Minute. Um, which is uh, different anecdotes and episodes and accounts uh, that illustrate uh, the history of the United States in ways uh, sometimes very recherche, but always very educational in terms of introducing you to hard facts that then can substantiate uh, or challenge the sense we have of uh, what this country came from and what its background was. Uh, He's also somebody who's given a lot of thoughtful work to our politics. He's been involved in politics. Went out uh, myself and supported him uh, when he was running uh, for office. And I'm glad I I supported him. I'm just sorry that he didn't get elected because we'd be much better off if you had and the Congress would have benefited from you greatly. But in any case, he's going to benefit us today. Welcome, Bill. How are you today?
1: Alan, it's great to be with you. Always an honor.
0: Now, we were chatting a little bit before the show started. And I thought it might be interesting for you to share a perspective that I don't think has been represented quite yet on the program because you actually went through a a little battle with the coronavirus and its effects, right? And, uh, And your wife is still kind of going through it. What was that like?
1: Well, I spoke in Albany, New York, and came back, and a day or so later, I got a call from pastor who said the person I spent time at the book table visiting with had the virus and I thanked him and shortly after I began to get fever and chills that mm-hmm. went on for three weeks about 102 and sweating and not being able to sleep at night uh, totally lost taste and uh, smell and appetite and uh, just uh, miserable um, but uh, thankfully am through it um, my wife was obviously around me, and so she has uh, been going through it and is in her, about her uh, 10th day, so just turned the corner, so uh, my wife made a comment. She said, you can tell this is man-made because it does not act like any other virus. You get a flu virus, you're sick for a couple days, and then you gradually begin to get your strength back. This sort of drags on with a hacking cough and so forth, and um, it it definitely doesn't act like any other uh, virus.
0: Well, that then, buttresses the point, I think, that we're dealing with a situation to start with. The, the novelty of the coronavirus, right, emphasized in the way they first referred to it, has then produced a novel situation in the United States where I think for the first time in the country's history, uh, partly because we're such a big country that prior to something like the present age, I think it would have been very hard to get the whole country to shut down all at once. Uh, You could have said it all you liked. I'm not sure anybody would have done it.
1: (laughs) Well, there are a whole lot of unanswered questions. The fact that the Wuhan laboratory specifically experimented with the coronavirus, that there are uh, articles that said that the Obama administration sent money over there to help Mm -hmm. fund the lab. A Harvard professor uh, helped set up the lab and he got indicted because he was taking millions of dollars under the table. Uh, Bill Gates is involved uh, with the lab, uh, the World Health Organization. So, a lot of questionable things. Matter of fact, a Nobel Prize winner said, Yes, it's clear that the virus was developed in the lab. His question was that it was just leaked accidentally.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Uh, But it it came out, uh, it would have had to gone into the meat market there in Wuhan before it came out of the meat market. Uh, And the meat market's been there for centuries. They've never had any problems with this. And we mentioned before the program that different scientists have analyzed the virus and said that there are features of it from HIV and from SARS and MERS and different things that could not have accidentally Assemble themselves. Yeah. And, um,
0: well, uh, I so- read things that kind of verify that because the techniques that are used uh, in order to alter uh, the uh, virus uh, are apparently techniques that leave traces, right? Uh, they create anomalies so that you see things that when the virus mutates, right, uh, it doesn't produce the kind of uh, changes in some of the characteristics of the of the genome itself to such a degree as is there. In other words, usually the changes will uh, will be uh, uh, changes that uh, go a certain distance toward uh, being different, like seventy percent or seventy-five percent. Um, there are a couple of characteristics in this virus apparently that are a hundred percent different, uh, and I've read articles where people who uh, um, are our you know, biophysicists and, and, and uh, folks who are involved in this work uh, say that that is a characteristic of engineering when, when you produce such a, such a total change because mutations sem- tend to be more random, right? And to find uh, uh, a change of that perfect magnitude uh, repeating itself uh, that suggests that uh, there was some hum- human engineering going on. The question then arises though, Bill, For what purpose? What were you doing when you engineered a virus like this to increase, uh, it's called gain of function, so that you increase the danger that it poses and the ease with which it can uh, get into the human body and so forth. Um, And I I gather from what people have written that I've seen that this can somehow be involved in research, though I haven't been convinced by anything I've read exactly what that's about. Uh, But I suppose you could uh, kind of uh, hone your skills at coming up with vaccines uh, by coming up with different uh, approaches to dealing with novel viruses that you create in the lab, Uh, and perhaps that is what escaped. The other problem, though, that I've also read and that some people are convinced is part of this problem, uh, though that remains to be seen, is that it's also part of what you would do if you were trying to use the virus as a biological weapon. Uh, And I think that people are shied away from even raising that subject. I suppose you'd be called a racist or something because the Chinese were the ones who did it. But I think that that's kind of anti-human racism and it ought to trump any particular ethnic group racism if that's what they're so concerned about. Uh, If you're doing something that as it has proven to be the case, threatens the whole human race, that's way more harmful uh, in every respect. And and so that suggests a malevolence that I think would have to be taken very seriously. Final point, and then a question. The behavior of the Chinese, though, that's what I think leads a lot of people to be suspicious. They behaved like somebody who thought that they were doing something wrong, don't you think? Because most of the time, you would follow the protocols you would tell the world what was going on you'd call for help if it had just sort of fallen on you by accident why all this effort to cover up if you don't feel like you have something to cover up oh,
1: man A very good question um you know one of the things i've been reading is the overpopulation agenda that uh people from bill gates and others they think the world is overpopulated, and for years they've been talking about how it's necessary that the Earth's population be reduced by drastic amounts. And uh, that there are news articles in Kenya where these young children were vaccinated for tetanus from uh, with a, a vaccine provided by some global organization. and. Lo and behold, these girls are growing up and they're finding out that they're sterile. And even the Catholic Church has been bringing lawsuits against these global organizations Mm. um, saying there's an antigen in the vaccine that sterilizes.
0: Uh,
1: And then uh, India, Uh, the country of India is... at odds with Bill Gates because his organizations provided funding for vaccines and they're finding um, uh, close to a half million children with features of being paralyzed. And so uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, is a vocal spokesperson about the dangers of vaccines and he specifically named Bill Gates saying that here he has all these companies that are involved with vaccines. And here uh, he wants to be on the front lines of providing vaccines. And he's also wanting to track everyone in the world, hmm. uh, have a digital certificate and have. Um, uh, and and so the, the question is uh, so somebody, uh, Kevin Sorbo, uh, the actor, had posted something and he got some news for it. Uh, and it was to the effect of if they uh, uh, keep abortion clinics open and close down churches, it's not about your health. If they keep marijuana stores open and, uh, you know, arrest a mother, a father and a child in the park, you know, playing baseball, you know, it's not about your health. And, and goes through the fact that uh, the response to this crisis Uh, happens to be very draconian Mm -hmm. and happens to be implementing an agenda very similar to Rahm Emanuel who once said never let a good crisis go to waste it's an opportunity to push your agenda and so whether the crisis is accidental or uh, conspiratorial the consequence is a concentration of control at an unprecedented level
0: well I think that's been pretty apparent first in the way that uh, some of them, including Nancy Pelosi, approached the effort to put together a package that would help to tide businesses, particularly small businesses, I thought, over through this period of stand down and idleness and workers going home and, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, uh, the, uh, she uh, was actually trying to introduce elements of their usual ideological agenda into this effort that were pretty well extraneous to the issues of health that we're actually dealing with, and to the question of how you simply try to make sure that businesses that were functioning, that their employees are still there and employable, and that the business is still there and hasn't uh, gone into default because of missed mortgage payments or other things uh, that can plague a small business if it has to go without its income stream for pretty much any length of time. Uh, and, And it seems like the same spirit of trying to advance that agenda uh, has been a characteristic of the priority that they have assigned to trying to stop certain activities rather than other activities that you were talking about. Uh, They seem to think ideology is actually more important than health and that then gives rise to the same type of suspicion that one has about the Chinese. Uh, uh, Is this something that just happened? Or is this something that happened because an agenda is being pursued uh, to the detriment, in particular, of the United States and other uh, and Europe, uh, country and countries, interestingly, like, like Israel that are our allies, um, as well, of course, as uh, some other countries in the world. Uh, but to allow people to suffer to this magnitude, um, doesn't that say something about what's wrong with the mentality of people who are willing to establish regimes like the communist party of china i mean how can you simply act as if the calculus that's involved in achieving your objective is worth inflicting danger and death and fear on people to this degree i i can't i think most people can't really fathom that kind of cold-bloodedness
1: Well, you know, the the cold-bloodedness of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. I was reading through the works of Frederick Engels, and he talked about how to institute socialism. And he says that the uh, conspirators are alchemists of the revolution Hmm. dedicated to creating artificial crises, Hmm. and that each crisis must be worse than the one before, and must put out of business more small capitalists. Mm. And when they are out of business, it will increase the number of unemployed who are then dependent upon the government, and this will create a revolution greater than what anybody ever anticipated. And so they began to implement uh, this, Lenin did. Who were the small capitalists in Russia? They were called the Kulaks, K-U-L-A-K-S, and they were the middle class farmers and they challenged the elites of the country. And once Lenin got in a power, he didn't want to be challenged anymore. And so he intentionally had a campaign to kill and wipe out the Kulaks. And you read Lenin's writings, he says, don't just kill them, hang them in the middle of the town so that everybody can see them. And then Lenin said, you grind the uh, businesses out of business, with the two millstones of taxation and inflation. Mm. So the socialist ideology says you need to get rid of the middle class because they're the only ones that can challenge the elites. And here they say within a couple weeks, because of Nancy Pelosi sidetracking these bills to give relief, they said within a couple weeks, uh, 43% of small businesses will go bankrupt.
0: Yeah.
1: I had read an article
0: that said it would be the largest uh, um, kind of uh, extinction of small business in the history of the country. And a lot of Americans don't, I think, realize to uh, the degree necessary. I remember when I was looking at these kinds of matters uh, when I worked at the United Nations for Ronald Reagan, uh, and we would talk a lot about different approaches and their impact on this and that. And I remember, as I was researching for various speeches, being struck time and again with the importance of the small business sector to job creation in the United States, and therefore, obviously, to the availability of employment, but also to the rectification of income disparity, right? So that you get those first rungs of the ladder established in a way that allow people to find what they need to develop themselves right in their local area. And and rather than being attached to some big corporate entity, uh, they can start young and uh, make make progress uh, of developing themselves as working people. Uh, The small business sector serves that function as well as the function of being the experimental section where you try different sizes of things and approaches, uh, ways of doing things. Um, It is also one that generates, I think, the reputation that Americans had, because I used to hear it all the time when I was at the State Department, about how hard people work. There are few people who work harder than American small business entrepreneurs trying to keep their business alive, because it takes that kind of dedication to make it work. All of those things are qualities that we kind of associate with the dynamism of American life. And when you allow that sector to suffer, I think Karl Marx is right. You're pushing people toward a kind of dependency. And then we get this glaring example, which is on the minds of a lot of them, because at the end of the day, I think they want to turn us all into wage slaves of the government. And, And I couldn't help but see in this idea of sending households, money to tide them through this, and so forth, I understand the purpose, but I think if it became a habit, wouldn't it have a decisively destructive effect on our character?
1: Well, it would, and then another angle is that the entire federal budget is, from what I've heard, around $6 trillion. And here, the bailout bill, or whatever the name of it is, is $2 trillion. Uh, This is totally unprecedented, and it's uncharted territory that basically we have given up all future efforts to balance the budget and we're just flat out making money with electronic um, entries and there'll be continual inflation from now on which will dry up uh, the savings of those that are older and those that are on fixed income. And um, that again, debt is a precursor to uh, empires falling. Yeah, uh, the Ottoman Empire fell. It was in debt. Uh, Reagan, who you worked for, with the arms race, uh, Russia tried to keep up and couldn't. Got in debt, and the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, the Roman Empire extended its borders too much, collapsed. The Spanish Empire, uh, its outgoes were more than its incomes. It collapsed. Uh, you could go on and on. And so here, America, with this uh, decision to just flat out, you know, print. The trillions anymore they just make electronic entries mm. uh, but this is going to totally change the financial landscape of, of the country uh, and and that needs to be put into the mix and again um the socialist concept is you need to tear down the old order and tear down the structure so that you have two classes left the governing class and the governed class right. that concept goes all the way back to plato where he says you have the philosopher king and uh, his administrators Mm -hmm. and his enforcer military, and then you have the masses of people that are the governed class. Uh, Thomas More and his Utopia talk about the same thing, the governing class and the governed class. Mm. Utopia was this uh, fictional island off the coast of South America. He wrote it just 20 years. um, uh, Sir Francis Bacon uh, wrote The New Atlantis, but Thomas More wrote um, the utopia, the word utopia means nowhere <laughs> yeah. and uh, 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 a farce was written regarding it called Gulliver's Travels, this mm-hmm. guy's washed up on an island and there's this society and he has got this governing class with a, on the top and then the poor people that just are, are the working class and, um, See, and I that's think their goal
0: that a lot of Americans haven't thought through the connection between the fact that this country was able, as a democratic republic, right, with a constitutional structure that called for the people to essentially be represented by responsible folks who would take care, especially, that we did not default on our debts. That was a big concern of the founders, and, and one aspect of the crisis that arose, as I recall, under the Articles of Confederation, had to do with the opportunity that was created by paper money at the time for people to manipulate things in such a way that people who borrowed money would be able to pay back in money that didn't have the the commodity value, the actual value in purchasing power uh, of the borrowing, Uh, and that that would then discourage people from lending, right, to a government that had the practice of default. And I've been hearing people talk about this $2 trillion as if it was something we could walk away from somehow by some shenanigans with the Fed and so forth and so on. And I must tell you, it raises the specter of exactly what you're talking about and what the founders feared. Uh, We can talk a little more about that, and it does transition, I think, to the issue in general of what this does to the character of the American people in comparison to what we have been known to be over the course of our entire existence pretty much up until the present day. Uh, So you just sit there, we'll be right back.
1: More IMTV episodes? We are now streaming through Roku. Roku is a device that enables you to stream entertainment to your TV through your internet provider. The starting price is only $29
0: and you can purchase
1: one either online or through your local electronics retailer.
0: It's easy to use, and you won't have to worry about missing any more IMTV episodes. IMTV, changing the world. Podcasts are great when you're a multitasking person. You can listen to them around the house, when you're out in the car, when you take a walk. Now we have put our shows on to podcasts, and you can listen to Let's Talk America uh, on podcasts. You can find them at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anchor fm and other apps while you're there subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on our new episode thanks for listening and supporting us together we're changing the world welcome back uh, we have been talking about some of the uh, uh, anomalies if you like that are part of our response to what the coronavirus is doing and one of the things that intrigues me about this uh, discussion Uh, Bill, is that uh, we had a talk the other day with uh, Dr. Uh, Shiva, who is becoming known, I think, out there as somebody uh, who uh, is looking at ways or looking for ways to understand this that would allow us to cope with threats like this uh, uh, a little better. And he challenged people to realize that what's going on may not be just about the damage the coronavirus does. That what a virus does when it operates is it starts to trigger immune responses. And those immune responses include, by the way, especially when you don't have a vaccine or some other targeted approach, the body has to develop the antibodies, right? And originally the whole idea of inoculation and vaccination was to take advantage of that fact so that if you are exposed to a little of the infecting uh, uh, agent, you would then be, the body would then respond by developing antibodies that were suited to uh, dealing with that, and that would then make you immune. Uh, The problem is twofold with viruses. They mutate from generation to generation, uh, which means that the vaccine you develop for one generation may not hold good of the generation that is produced by that very virus itself uh, that has escaped into the world. Uh, So different mutations will then be found, and uh, I think uh, uh, research has now come up already with the fact that there appear to be noticeably different variations of this novel coronavirus and different uh, uh, things, uh, 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 virulence and and effects uh, that distinguish, for instance, the people who got sick on the West Coast from the folks who are sickened on the East Coast of the United States. That's interesting, isn't it? suggests that we're going to be faced with this for a while. Now, the response of the body can then be responsible for danger. He says that the respiratory problems people have can be related to the fact that when the body doesn't know what is the particularly harmful nature of the virus, there is another uh, antibody that comes along which doesn't need to distinguish because it comes along to execute the cell in order to remove the infected part. So it devours and breaks up the cell itself. You can imagine that if you keep doing that time and again, that's going to result in damage to the organ, in this case the lung, and lead to serious uh, difficulties. Uh, and, and, And he was suggesting that that is the body fighting itself, right? Well, think about the parallel with what you were just talking about. The measures we take, to try to deal with the spread of the coronavirus then lead us to go into debt, lead us to shut down the economy so our productivity has no hope of catching up with that debt until finally we collapse. Wouldn't that be tragic?
1: Well, it definitely would be tragic and uh, coupled together with the oil, how uh, the glut of oil, Saudi Arabia and Russia dumping oil on the market uh, that uh, oil has gone negative. Uh, in other words, they can't. They want to pay people to store it, mm. but there's thousands of oil ships of oil off the coast of California, and uh, there's no place to to store it. And 20% of America's economy has relation to oil, and so we're going to see a, a financial collapse there. And but but I do think they there are features about this virus that do appear to be man-made. Uh, that you had mentioned before, that uh, totally different features that have not been in previous strains. Every year, there are tens of thousands of viruses. And the vaccination industry simply picks out a couple that they think will be the problem for the next year. And so they spend a whole year developing these viruses, packaging them, getting them all ready and, and then having people take them when it's one in 10,000 chance that the vaccine they've prepared is actually going to be the one that is manifesting itself a year in the future. Hmm. So the industry itself is, and then they're using a, aborted baby parts to do the, the research. They're experimenting with human cells from aborted babies. And this has a moral aspect to it that should cause problems of us wanting to take a vaccine that was created from an aborted baby. Uh, There's a lot of issues that are at at stake here. And uh, again, the arbitrariness where some of these governors say, well, we have to keep the abortion clinics open. They're necessary. But we have to close down the churches. They're unnecessary. And uh, when you look through history, um, churches started the hospitals. You know, you had uh, uh, Constantine, 325 A.D., of Nicaea decided that every uh, cathedral should have a, an infirmary and people would go on pilgrimages to the cathedrals, long distances, they'd wind up sick, and so the infirmary got called the hospital. The word hosp means traveler, Mm. and so it's to take care of the traveler, and then um, that's where we get the word hospitality and hotel and hostel and so forth. Well then, in the, the sixth century, just Justinian in Constantinople, they had the Plague of Justinian, 50 million people died. Hmm. They estimate half of the known world's population died. Well, who was on the front lines? The churches were. Hmm. Uh, and then you fast forward to the 600s and uh, Hotel du in Paris and uh, the orders of Catholic nuns that took care of the sick. And then you got the bubonic plague. and you have the election brothers that would give a christian burial to the the, those that died in sort of a hospice type care and and then you look at all the hospitals started uh out of the the catholic church and then uh, ben franklin started the first church in america but the first uh church church excuse me the first hospital in america but it was the sisters of saint joseph that started the first church west of the mississippi and even during the Civil War, there's a whole order of nuns following the army around, taking care of the sick. They worked in the Spanish-American War as well. The church has always been on the front lines whenever there is a health crisis. And to tie the church's hands up at this time is totally unprecedented. And I think a uh, ex- exposing the agenda uh, of those that want to use this crisis for their purposes.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about that because it seems to me that we have, on the one hand, uh, the Democrat governors and mayors and people like this, it's, I think exclusively, to tell you the truth, who have really been going overboard, particularly in the judgments that they make that are hostile to activities of faith. Right? Uh, it's not the only thing that they've been doing of this kind, uh, but they also seem to want to accustom people To uh, knowing that they don't have the freedom to do X, Y, and Z, that that's a decision that's now going to be made in a centralized fashion. Uh, So, that ideology, which kind of we would say, I guess, in terms of our political spectrum, they're leaning to the left. The folks who are leaning to the left seem to be taking measures that reflect what has been the traditional hostility all the way back to the French Revolution before of the left wingers uh, to. Uh, faith, Uh, not just to organized religion, uh, but to God and to the idea that it is God not just matter somehow behaving itself uh, that produces uh, results in in the world. Uh, Do you think that this is going to start to wake some folks up to the fact uh, that the regimes that have been the harshest in terms of inhumanity, in terms of massive killing and things of this kind have been regimes that had socialists in their name. And people will say, well, no, 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 it wasn't the communists. It was, it was, those were nasty Nazis. No, I'm sorry. The Nazis called themselves national socialists. They too were interested in the same imposition, the same destruction of liberty, characteristic of the, the, the communists, with a, some variation for the useful idiots and how you use them. In this case, the Nazis being more open to the good use you could put corporate capitalists to, right, and they made use of them. Uh, But there was still a suppression of liberty. So at the end of the day, it seems like there's a natural affinity, which is making itself manifest. Do you think people are learning the lesson of that, or are they just ignoring, as if it's a coincidence, because it suggests that if these people achieve their agenda, this is not gonna be a very comfortable country to live in anymore.
1: No, especially when you see things like the, the Georgia Guidestones that somebody put up that talks about reducing the world's population by, you know, billions. Um, but, uh, you know, a little history, the first century and a half of America, the primary religious group were called Calvinists. And they had this concept that God has a plan for your life, your marriage, your family, your church, and your government. Find out what God's plan is, put it in place. And then in the early 1700s, a group came from Germany, and they were called Pietists. And now this is an important um, introduction. Why? So here we have Martin Luther, 1517, starts the Reformation. He had a personal revelation that just shall live by faith, very personal to him. But some German princes say, this is our chance we're gonna break away from Rome. And so these princes say, okay, kingdom of mine, you're all now Lutheran. And the people in the kingdom say, okay, okay, we're Lutheran, Uh, what do we believe? Mm. And so for the people in these kingdoms, it's not the same personal experience that Martin Luther had, it's just agreeing with some new state doctrine. And so a revival movement started in Germany called pietism that said, look, being a Christian is more than just agreeing with doctrine. You have to have a personal experience with Jesus. And when you do, your life will change. And you won't do all the worldly things you used to do, like go to the bars and brothels and lewd theater and get involved in government. Wait, what was that last thing? Oh yeah, government, it's still full of worldly people, so if you're really a Christian, you won't get involved in government. There were actually German princes that donated money to the pietists so they would teach their people not to get involved in the prince's business. Mm. And so this developed in Germany, this concept of the two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world, and there's the kingdom of the church, and the two don't meet, and, and so it was set up in Germany, and believe it or not, it's still in place today. If you get a job, you fill out your W-2 form, and you put, you put which church you go to, the government withholds the tithe from your paycheck and then funnels the money to the church. Mm. And so this, uh, again, has been in place in Germany for centuries, and so uh, what happened was that these pastors, Martin Niemöller, and, uh, confronted Hitler when he first took uh, the chancellorship in 1933, and Hitler said, well, don't worry, your, your paychecks will still come. Mm. But it was this thought that these churches didn't want to speak out against Hitler because he could make a decision and cut off their paychecks. Right. And so what happened was the church had trained itself to not say anything about the politics and it took millions of people dying to stop Hitler because of this erroneous church teaching. Uh, now, in America, these German pietists, uh, you know, they started Amish communities and, and so forth, and their ultimate was they didn't even want to vote. They didn't want to get involved. And, of course, uh, the popular story, uh, Henry Muhlenberg, considered the father of the Lutheran church in America, he had two sons, Peter and Frederick, and they both were Lutheran pastors. And Peter uh, heard Patrick Henry's, give me liberty, give me death speech, And Peter Muhlenberg goes to George Washington and says, I want to help. And Washington says, I'm going to make you a colonel. Go get your men. Mm. And he goes to church. He gives a talk out of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for all things, time to gather stones, time to scatter stones, time to preach, time to fight. Takes off his clerical robe. Underneath is a uniform of a continental colonel. (laughs) He, He leads 800 men or 300 men of his church to join the 8th Virginia Regiment. They fight in all these battles. He gets promoted to general, fights at Yorktown, and afterwards, he's elected to Congress, and he's so popular, his statue is in the U.S. Capitol's Statuary Hall with his clerical robe half off and his uniform showing in his sword and so forth. Well, his brother Frederick was in New York, and Frederick was pastoring a pietist Lutheran church, writing letters to uh, John Peter, saying, "You're you're getting involved in things which as a preacher, you have nothing whatsoever to do. And then John Peter writes back, says, well, you're a Tory loyalist. And and then Frederick writes back, says, no, I I just can't serve two masters. And they're going after each other until the British bombard New York, occupy it, and Frederick's church is burnt, and he and his family have to flee the city. He gets involved in the revolution. He gets elected to Congress afterwards, and he gets elected the first speaker of the House. The first speaker of the US House of Representatives is Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. Two people signed the Bill of Rights that the Congress approved to send to the states. uh, John Adams as the Vice President and the President of the Senate and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. Does anybody think that these two brothers who are both in the first Congress and they both are involved in passing the First Amendment, that they would um, pass a, a law to outlaw themselves? think pastors shouldn't get involved in politics when we're pastors and we did get involved. And so the message is that we, the Christians, instead of backing up and saying, well, we got to do whatever the government says. In America, the word citizen means cocaine, that we're the co-kings and the politicians are our servants. We need to not be cowered back into a corner and insist the government do our will.
0: Well, see, I have been approached by folks with a question about what I thought Uh, bishops, pastors, other uh, church people should do with the fact that churches are entitled to get money from the government under this uh, stimulus bill that was passed, right? Uh, And whether or not I thought that that was a good idea. And I've had to allow us how I do not think it's a good idea. Uh, Because uh, as, as I think it was Blackstone said somewhere in the commentaries, the power over a man's resources, that's a power over his will. Now wait a minute, if a power over resources, a power over will, and the government is the source of the resources of the church, what happens to the will of God versus the will of the government when that conflict arises? Uh, Because at that point, your resources would come into conflict with your faithfulness to God's standard. Uh, And what I think people often forget is that the Declaration of Independence, other things. We talk a lot about freedom, right? I always prefer to use, when I'm talking about things in the most serious way, the word liberty. Because liberty is the, con- the Constitution's term. And liberty is an unalienable right. And a lot of people, again, and I talk about this often on the show, uh, 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 Bill, because I think it's critically important. A lot of people are fooled by the 20th century tendency to conflate the words right and freedom, as if they are the same. But though every right includes freedom, not every exercise of freedom is right. And therefore, you have to ask, by what standard do you distinguish between the freedom that is wrong and the freedom that exercises or does, achieves, serves, right? And that standard is, according to the Declaration, the standard of God's endowment, right? What is an endowment? It's it's the terms on which the the, uh, will, right? Is filled with content. I'm going to leave you this and this and this. Maybe it's money, maybe it's a house, maybe it's land, maybe it's whatever, but these are the terms on which you get to use it, right? These are the terms on which I am endowing this institution or that individual and so forth and so on. There's a relationship, then, between the right and the standard of the endower, determined and stated in the will. Uh, And God's will, of course, for a lot of people in, in, uh, in America in the past, God's will was clearly indicated in a number of ways, but especially in his word. By his word, his will was indicated. Word where? Word in the scripture and word made flesh, as reported in the scripture and given in the example of Christ. Uh, So the notion that somehow or another our regime is indifferent to the question of the standard of right then leads people to think that we're just uh, a country that's all about people doing what they want. No, it's not. From the very beginning our claim to authority was based on the notion that we were doing right according to God and that some human power coming along to tell us not to do it, right? was going against God, not just against us. And therefore, we were right to battle that power. Why were we right? Because we must stay on the righteous path that God has ordained. That understanding of right is almost completely lost now. Uh, And people think of it as if it's the same as freedom when that is incompatible with the sense of responsibility that a sovereign is supposed to have for the good of the community, uh, and you can see it in the paradigm of family life, the paradigm of village life, then finally, the paradigm of communal life, raised even all the way to the national level, that we as a people are supposed to have a sense of right that then disciplines our choices and behaviors, so that the choices we make are a conscientious effort to accord with God's will. And when we are doing that, we must be respected in the choices we make and in the courses of action that we choose. Are we headed down a road that's going to completely throw that aside? You stop people from going to church so they're forgetting that they answer to a higher standard. Uh, You are acting as if the behavior that kills is the equivalent of the behavior that respects the will of God for life, for example. Uh, and that's going on right now, by the end of it, haven't you completely destroyed the sense of a standard, which is supposed to discipline your choices, so that in your use of the liberty, wherewith Christ hath made you free, you make choices that conform to the standard of right, which then allows you, because it is obedient to God, to expect That as those who love God act according to his commands, so all things will work together for good, for your family, for your community, for your country. If we put the government in a position to challenge that standard of authority and substitute for it some standard that is based upon the power of the people, the literal meaning of democracy, haven't we in fact destroyed the understanding of unalienable rights that the country is founded on?
1: Yes, you're hitting it on the head and um, I wanted to revisit one thing you you brought up and that's the dependency on the government that when the government starts giving money and how people get dependent upon that. And, uh, you know, a drug dealer can take over a neighborhood two ways. Mm. He can come in and shoot up people or he can give away free drugs and the people get hooked. Mm -hmm. And so uh, your loyalty goes with the paycheck. Um, You know, one of the first things debated uh, in the revolutionary times was the king insisted on paying the judges. And you think, oh, sure, let the king pay the judges, a little less for us to have to pay. No, the founding fathers were furious about that because they knew that the judges' loyalty would go with their paycheck and they wouldn't get justice. And so the thought is uh, a lot of people are going on unemployment. Uh, Because they're losing their jobs because of this shutdown. And there's a dynamic that happens once you begin to receive money. Uh, You begin to want to have that continue. I give the illustration. Imagine if you were getting a $1,000 check in the mail every week from someone you didn't know. Week after week, month after month. After a few years of it, would you ask yourself, who is sending me this $1,000 check every week? I'm going to find out who they are and vote them out of office. Would anybody do that? Like, yes. I, didn't say well, like Don't <laughs> I can't imagine those, it.
0: Right? And, 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 and also, would anybody have the wherewithal to successfully organize a campaign that would then vote them out of office because you're so dependent on the money that comes from them, you would be fearful of challenging the source of that money by suggesting that it ought to be taken away. Uh, you know, we, I, I, I find it amazing that when I'm involved in these discussions, the time just seems to go by, like nobody's business, we are coming to the end of our time together today. And I find it amazing that that is true. But I think we've hit on a salient point, and I want to point it in one little direction. We can't spend much time on it because we've only got a few seconds left, but I found it interesting, Bill, as I see how people are talking about the future, that the Democrats seem to be making, quite frankly, a big effort to try to Sustain the mechanisms of dependency that were evoked in order to help people find the self-discipline to serve the common good by behaving in a way that didn't spread the virus, right? So there was a responsible purpose involved that called for the discipline of the people. But I think what is now called for is the discipline to understand the connection between the fact that you are able to sustain yourself by your own work and the fact that our system of self-government has up to this point worked because I think on the day our people start stop making that connection between their work and their liberty our constitutional system will no longer work and it will be replaced by an oligarchic tyranny of those who have engineered us into a situation where one way or another our future depends on their largesse. Rather, whether it's because we're getting some kind of check from the government or because we've put our self-government, represented in our constitutionally elected uh, officials and, and, and government, in a position where they depend endlessly on the trust and confidence of those from whom they have excessively borrowed money so that they are really in their power. So if you put the nation's government in the power of those who have lent money that we can't repay forever and ever, then I think we have made every future generation of Americans, from citizens into serfs, from slaves, into those who are mastered by the people who engineered them into that folly. Um, Just a few seconds, Do do you think that's where we're headed?
1: has been usurping this power or uh, Sweden comes to mind they have been uh, addressing this coronavirus not by draconian measures but by trusting the people mm. saying look take it upon yourself to social distance and you know and all the rest uh, and so here you have freedom uh, or Liberty as you mentioned um but in in Security and I think it was Ben Franklin who said, whoever gives up a liberty for security you will get neither. Uh, and so the well, idea is let's trust the people to be I, responsible I, to surrender to the government.
0: I have to say I agree with that. And I hope that everybody, all of you out there who've been listening to us will think about this. Think it through. You know, you can trust the government or you can trust yourselves. If you are able to have that confidence in yourself then you're going to be able to trust that the government will remain under your control. But how do you remain under control? See, that's where the fact that they want to shut down the churches should wake you up to the truth. That's an attack on your confidence, on what you do with faith, which is what that word fide comes from, see? And and if you can, in fact, act with a sense of reliance on your own good faith, uh, then this regime has a chance of surviving. If not, then I fear that uh, our degraded character will make it impossible for us to sustain. Ponder that and join us again here at Let's Talk America. We'll